Welcome to the Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. I'm your host, Nabil Hanan, Managing Director at NetSpy. This is a podcast sponsored by NetSpy as a place to share best practices and trends in the world of cybersecurity and vulnerability management. Portions of this interview will appear in print on the NetSpy executive blog. To find out more, go to www.netspy.com slash agent of influence. This is an episode in a series of interviews with industry leaders and security gurus. And it's a pleasure to have with me today my friend and a former colleague, John Mark. Hi, John. Hey, Nabil. Good morning. Good morning. John has over 15 years of experience in information security, encompassing compliance, threat and risk management, security assessments, digital forensics, application security, and emerging technologies such as AI, machine learning, IoT, and blockchain. He holds a master's in computer security, a bachelor's in software engineering, and is a payment card industry professional. John currently works for the PCI Council, and his role includes developing and evolving standards for the emerging mobile payments technologies, along with technical contributions and efforts surrounding penetration testing, secure application, secure application lifecycle, and emerging technologies such as mobile payment technologies, cloud, and IoT. Previously, John chaired the Cloud Computing Special Interest Group and Maintaining PCI DSS Compliance Special Interest Group. Prior to joining the council, John was a consultant and a subject matter expert with various companies across Europe, North America, and the Middle East, ranging from performing complex hands-on security assessment to managing a diverse security service portfolio while leading a team of highly skilled consultants. So we obviously have a lot to cover today with John. So John, how did you get started with security? By mistake. <laughs> Let me elaborate that. Like most people. <laughs> I guess, yeah. So um, back in the days when I was a young uh, student, uh, I was actually studying um, biotechnology, which is a combination of biology, chemistry, math, and computer science. Uh, from those four majors, you can probably know that there is no computer security in the list. As, as a student, uh, I found a job in information security center in a bank where I worked during the nights looking at uh, monitors. And uh, my job was pretty simple back then. All I had to do is to look at the monitor. If anything would blink red, I would pick up a phone, press one, and it would speed dial to someone who would help or actually, no, you know what, help, it would be overestimate, overestimation of what my, my role was back then, who would actually solve the issue that the system has identified. So in a way, I was a human uh, SIM program. So it was cheaper to hire you instead of actually building automation that could do that job. Well, to, to do... My job, I actually build a little screen scraper uh, that would scrape the screen and, and if it would identify anything red, it would play 
uh, an MP3 file just to alert me that something is going on. Then I could press one on speed dial and get the real experts in. Uh, I think it was before uh, seeing uh, products were wildly available. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yes, I guess it is. Uh, it was cheaper to to get a human just to uh, uh, <laughs> look at the screen for uh, for uh, twelve now twelve hours during the night. Um, after doing that for a while, I thought, well, I actually want to be the one who gets the call, who actually have to deal with security issues as opposed to just looking at the screen. And that's how I got into security. I joined a company called Comsec that had a really good onboarding process. Uh, they trained me. Uh, again, from my background, there was no security knowledge. Yes, I know what IP is. I had uh, coding experience or software development development experience, but uh, nothing to do with security. So went through training, and uh, the rest is history. No, that's great, and. I'd be curious, you spent years uh, in the consulting space dealing with cybersecurity in, in various aspects, and then eventually you transitioned to the PCI Council. From your perspective, what are some of the key differences from being a consultant to working in the industry? Well, I, uh, I see consultants uh, as not only people who uh, go in and do a single project and then uh, move on to the next engagement. Uh, I personally feel that consultants have a very important role as knowledge spreaders um, in the industry as a whole. Even though as part of my engagements as a consultant, I would I would be a subject matter expert in a specific field on that specific engagement, I would always learn something from the customers. Everyone does things differently. And sometimes people's ingenuity People create something completely awesome <laughs> that no one else thought about. Uh, so I would see that my role as a consultant would be not only to provide my subject expertise, but be mindful and note those things, those amazing things that that other companies have done and uh, use that in my next engagements. So basically, it, it to spread the knowledge. <laughs> that not only I possess, but other companies generated and, and it could be valuable to, to the entire industry. Council, in a way, that's exactly what we do. We create security standards, which encapsulates years of experience and knowledge, not only of council employees, but of all our st- stakeholders that join us in developing those standards. Uh, that can be adopted in any environment. Those standards are being constantly evolved to make sure they remain current. So in a way, we are spreading knowledge of how to do things in a secure way. Would you say there are specific aspects of consulting that is that has helped you in your efforts today as part of the council? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think uh, being consultant, you, you work on engagements within your customer's environment. So you, you, you get to see not only theoretical issues companies are facing with, but also operational issues, um, uh, business-related issues. I mean, it's easy to say 
Oh, let me give you an example. Let, uh, it, it, it's easy to write a security requirement to say, you shall do code review on daily basis of the entire uh, code stack. Well, that's great security requirement. Does anyone have enough uh, human resources to actually do that, especially if, if we're talking about 300,000 million lines of code. It's not possible to review that daily. So consultants, uh, consultancy and working in a field brings uh, realistic expectations of what can actually be done. And uh, if the standard has security requirements that can be implemented or reasonably can be implemented, then there is a higher chance the standard or standards will be adopted by the industry as opposed to setting some arbitrary bar that no one can meet. And yeah, the standard is great, but since no one can meet those requirements, it's just going to remain as a PDF in, on, a, on a desktop or printed out stack of paper in your drawer. That is definitely good insight. So let's shift gears a little bit. Uh, and talk about the PCI Council. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about what is the PCI Council and the goals of the Council itself? So the Council was established 11 years ago by a number of payment brands to create a single framework that would, that would be acceptable to all of those payment brands uh, to secure payment or account data of the merchants and service providers in that ecosystem. Since then, we have created many additional standards that are not only covering the operational environment, but also device, the device security standards such as PCI, PTS standard. We have security standards that covered hardware security modules. We have security standards that are applicable to point-to-point -point encryption solutions. And now we are in process of developing security standards for various emerging payment technologies, which I happen to, um, to chair those working groups. Um, in general, the mission of the council is to allow secure payment processing by all of our stakeholders. Is there... Um specific goals from a security perspective that the council is trying to adhere to? Or is it more focused on making sure the standard is built in a way that everyone can be compliant? Well, we hope that everyone can be compliant. Um, well, the, the standard built in a way to address security risks. The version of, so, so if we take PCI DSS, for example, which was the very first standard uh, created and published by uh, the council. That standard has involved and had numerous iterations since its publication to account for evolving threats. If we look at some of the things that have changed, the disallowance of insecure protocols, I'm talking about WAP, uh, was introduced at some point. One of the later, later changes, and I'm talking about PCI DSS 3 to 1, was to disallow early versions of SSL and TLS because security vulnerabilities were identified there. Also, through feedback the council has received from various stakeholders, number of security requirements were enhanced uh, to make sure that 
as the years goes by, the standard does not become obsolete, but it keeps up with the existing, with the current threats to the payment card industry as a whole. So I guess to answer your question, the standard built in a way to address threats that that directly impacting payment ecosystem. It's not all-encompassing standard. Uh, so, for example, organizations that operate national infrastructure or electricity grid, they will find some security requirements that will be applicable to them. But it does not necessarily mean that PCI DSS will address all the risks that are applicable to national electricity grid. The standard is focused on payment ecosystem. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, over the years, the way people, well, people's purchasing behavior has changed, but also the way people make payments, whether it be electronically or with physical cards uh, when they're making purchases, that behavior and process has obviously evolved. And it's evolved significantly in the past decade. From your perspective, are there any specific trends you're seeing that you expect changes to come over the next decade? Well, people want convenience, uh, not just in payment, in absolutely every aspect of their life. Uh, they want convenience and they want security. So uh, payments will evolve to accommodate that. Uh, even today, there are pilots of stores where you walk in, you purchase or well, not purchase, you put in your shopping basket, uh, whatever you need to purchase, and you walk out. Uh, automation, artificial intelligence, uh, machine vision, biometric systems that are installed in that store will identify you, will identify the products, products you have put in your, in your bag, and will deduct whatever, and, and will deduct the, the money from your pre-registered account for those purchases. Uh, completely seamless. Um, that would be the future. There are some pilots in, uh, in Asia where you still have a till, but uh, after you run all the items you want to purchase through the till, all you have to do is to look at the till. The till will identify you through iris scan and through additional biometric characteristics will assure itself that you is you and simply deduct the required payment from the pre-registered account. Uh, many of appliances, now if, if we look at uh, uh, and bring IoT into the equation, many of home appliances, and I'm talking about fridges, for example, they become connected to the internet. So it is possible that in the future, a fridge will identify that you run out of milk it will purchase the milk to be delivered to you and deduct the payment or, or perform the payment on your behalf. So the next morning you can wake up with a fresh bottle of milk on your, door, on your doorstep that was ordered by your fridge. Uh, and of course, uh, I guess mobile is everywhere. More and more people have smartphones and uh, with that it comes convenience of paying using your smartphone and not just smart, smartphones but smart watches uh, in fact in the last week i don't remember the last time i actually used plastic to pay for anything 
it's either my phone or my watch. It's uh, way simpler. It's contactless. I I I see that that at least in my personal opinion, I think that we will see more and more technologies that allows this type of payment. So yes, it will still be backed by a credit card behind the scenes, but the form factor of a rectangular plastic will shift to other form factors more convenient, more seamless to humans. Yeah, and the convenience factor is is huge. I personally saw the value of the the payments through the mobile devices and and how effective they could be was one time when I was traveling for work and I actually forgot my wallet uh, at home. And when I reached the airport, I did have my passport in my bag, luckily, so I could still travel. But I had forgotten my wallet and I, I was actually able to go to the ATM in the airport and withdraw cash through my debit card, the virtual debit card that I had on my iPhone. And I think that's when a light bulb went off in my head. And ever since then, actually, I think I've been using my um, Apple Pay more and more than, you know, than my actual physical credit cards. In fact, I actually have a credit card that technically is expired, but my Apple Pay still seems to be working. So I haven't gotten the new card or if it may have been mailed to me and I just don't know where it is. And and that's huge. I mean, you know what? Another thing I want to mention, uh, and you might have seen those. Now there are a number of companies that provide you with rings, uh, smart rings. Uh, Some of the rings are able to perform biometric authentication of the wearer of the ring. Uh, And then you can load into the ring payment cards. You can load into the ring your uh, transit system card. so when you want to pay, you just knock with that ring on on a um, NFC-enabled reading device, and you're done. You want to take a train ride, you knock with your ring on a, on a NFC reading device, and you're done. Convenience will definitely drive innovation, and uh, innovation will force security standards to adapt and possibly will drive new security standards to ensure that the emerging technologies are secure. Yeah. And then, you know, there comes the the challenge around privacy. Um, in fact, when you mentioned the example of an iris scan to identify who you are and make a payment at a store, it reminded me of the movie uh, Minority Report. I don't know if you remember watching that. It came out a while ago. It's where Tom Cruise uh, is marked as a fugitive, and then he's trying to get away from the authorities. But because there's iris scans everywhere, um, it recognizes him. He ends up getting his eyes transplanted, right, so that he can avoid the cameras. Um, it's not very realistic, but you know, it kind of highlights the the fact that if people want convenience, and if people want sort of ease of transaction or ease of payment, it does come with a price and the price may be privacy. You're right. Uh, I mean, in order to have seamless payments, at the end of the day, the system still needs to identify you as you. So if today, if you use a chip and pin enabled card, the way you authenticate yourself is by entering a pin. 
which is a manual process. It, it takes time to dip the card into the, uh, into the uh, point of interaction device. It takes time to punch in the pen, to authenticate the pen. It's way more seamless to use iris scans. But in order to do that, syst you, you, you need to surrender. And uh, I guess I'm using this term on purpose uh, to tie to the fact that you have to give something of yours to the system, whatever the system is, in order for system to identify that you is you. We will not get to a point where the state will run or, or chase Nabil around the, the globe because they know your eye, <laughs> the color of your eyes. Back to the biometric. Right now, the, the standards are focusing on protecting account data. Who knows? Maybe in the future there will be there will be a merge between standards that focus on protecting account data and standards that protect biometric data. Well, do you have any specific thoughts around what happens in the case the system has a flaw and attackers are able to either mimic or bypass or replicate the bio biometric information of a person because you know if i lose a credit card i can call my credit card company and get a new credit card with a new number but if for some reason my fingerprint is compromised and someone can use my fingerprint to make payments without me knowing i can't go change my fingerprints so what are your thoughts on on what happens in that type of situation where you know the breach involves a design flaw of using some type of biometric that people can't change? Well, I wouldn't say the design flow. It's it's a nature of uh, of us being human. I mean, we have a number of characteristics that identify us, and for duration of our lifetime, they don't change much. It's it's difficult to say whether a choice of fingerprint is the right choice or not, or whether the iris scan is the right choice for consumer authentication or not. At the end of the day, the payment system needs to authenticate you. If the choice is between characteristics that cannot be changed, system needs to have additional um, inputs into making sure that it's not a fraudulent transaction. So for example, it could be a combination of your fingerprint and the mobile device you're using. Uh, if it is a known device that belongs to you, the system could accept uh, the transaction with uh, that was authenticated by your fingerprint plus additional information it collected from your device that it is in fact belongs to you and there is known known mal malware on the device versus you use your fingerprint on a new device and that system at that point the system could say well yeah the fingerprints match matches Nabil's fingerprint but it's a new device or the device might have some suspicious software on it so the system will ask you to enter your pin or to provide additional authentication that you, in fact, trying to make the transaction and it's not a fraudulent transaction. Uh, it will be a more elaborate system that takes numerous characteristics of the transaction, of the environment where transaction is conducted. 
and the payment device um, into account before transaction is processed. I think it goes back to the whole multi-factor, right? You have to have multiple factors of authentication um, as part of the overall you know, system and architecture and how you implement it. When it comes to you know, payment platforms, I know for a fact that there are lots of challenges in emerging parts of the world where people are trying to enable the ability to make payments or accept payments using devices or platforms that are somewhat inherently insecure. Um, what are some challenges there? And, and what are some techniques or approaches that you think might end up being effective? Well, that's, that's a great question. And that's something that we are, as a council, uh, working on at this moment in time. So the, the most popular platform that is emerging right now is a mobile payment platform. Uh, s- small business owners, or sometimes even larger business owners, they want to take mobile devices that everyone has, install an app on those devices, and through that, to be able to take payments. Uh, think of it an instant point of sale. The fact that the phone is not controlled by an enterprise and uh, each individual can install a slew of applications, some of them might, that might be, in fact, malware, uh, put tremendous risk on the entire payment processing. So think about it this way. Would you feel comfortable if uh, you approach a lemonade st- stand and the uh, child that runs the stand gives you his or her phone, it's like, yes, please tap your card on my phone. Um, I don't know. It, I mean, maybe because I am working in payment industry and I've seen the fraud that happens, I would think twice before I do that. But from the standpoint of that child, uh, the fact that you can install an app on your phone and be able to take payments instantly to take payments, it's a, it's an enabler. Uh, you no longer need to wait. You, you no longer can sell your lemonade to people who have cash, but also people who have plastic in, in their pockets or other smart payment device. So that's not going to stop. So we, as an, as an industry, need to find a way how to make it securely. And uh, what the council have done, we, we already published two standards. Uh, one is software-based pin entry and cuts, or SPOC, that enables solution provider to develop an app plus a small hardware dongle that would go with the solution. The purpose of the hardware dongle would be to read card information while the phone becomes a point of sale plus ability to enter PIN to authenticate consumers. Uh, The second standard we have released is contactless payments and cards. In this case, you have no dongles whatsoever. It's uh, it's an application that merchant can download to their phone that would make sure the phone is reasonably secure by performing various attestations of the phone and attestations of the application and allow merchant to instantly transform their phone into a point of sale. Now, when you talk about emerging markets, uh, in, in some places, 
there are no payment infrastructure that exists that you can walk into a bank and say, hey, I want to have a merchant account. In some cases, it just takes time to, to get that. With, uh, with the mobile payment technologies, you cut that and you can become merchant basically immediately. Well, it's good to hear that you, you're working on these solutions, you know, coming from an emerging part of the world. And, you know, I know for a fact that having the ability to make financial transactions in areas that don't have a lot of infrastructure through this, you know, cell phone um, network or mobile networks, um, it has really dramatically changed the, you know, people's livelihood. And, um, you know, we need to make sure that that's being done securely. So I'm glad to see that there's, uh, there's a lot of progress happening uh, in that area. And there is a lot of adoption of that as well, even in areas you would less expect to do so. Just was it was it, I think it was two weeks ago when I stopped at the intersection and a beggar came over to ask for a change. When I said I have no change, the person pulled a phone and said, "Well, you can type your card." Yeah, and that was surprising, but not surprising at the same time. I mean, if we do allow anyone to become a merchant, why not that person? Well, not only that. I mean, it's also. Uh, the industry for mobile devices and mobile technologies are becoming very affordable. There are um, countries in Asia in particular that I'm familiar with where they are making mobile phones that are extremely affordable to the point where anyone can actually purchase one. And now they have access to the internet, access to smart features provided by you know the Android oper- operating system, and of course, they can have access to virtual currency uh, that they can use uh, to make payments. That's so true. So true. Well, John, uh, I always like to talk about things not related to work and not related to security uh, in the podcast with our guests. So I know that you have a love for sailing, and you also recently uh, purchased a yacht. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit more about your passion there? And uh, how did you actually get started with sailing? All right. Oh, yes. So sailing is an escape for me. Um, When you're out on the water, the only thing you care about is wind and sun to make sure your your sailing boat keeps moving in the direction you want it to move. Uh, You forget about uh, work. You forget about any other issues. Uh, it's 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 an amazing escape to clear to clear your head and just to relax. It's all started with a birthday gift from my wife uh, back when we lived in England. Uh, she got me a five days uh, course. Um, I think it called Comp- RYA Competent Crew uh, that we went on it together in uh, in August two thousand three two thousand four. Anyway, a long time ago. Um, that was amazing. I really loved the fact that for five days of that course, the engine was running probably for 10 minutes. The rest, so for five days, that vessel was operated by wind, which is the epitome of renewable e- energy. That's what humanity tries to get you. But uh, also the silence of sailing, the silence of... Uh, the silence when you drop an anchor and there is nothing around you 
but waves. It's it was amazing. So I've decided to take uh, uh, the next course in the series to become a skipper. The same organization offered uh, that course with fifty percent discount in November, and that was still in England. So I thought, well, how bad can it be? Well, it was bad. <laughs> Uh, there, there is a reason why they offer fifty percent discount. It was snowing, and uh, wearing jeans uh, and uh, and a t-shirt, being wet while it's snowing and windy, that's not extremely present. But it did not deter me from love of sailing. When I moved to Canada, I joined a local sailing club. Uh, they, they, they have a program, or we have a program, I'm part of that club now, uh, that allows anyone who does not have a boat to come and learn to sail and take uh, two boats that owned by the club out. And last year, I've decided to, uh, to buy my own uh, new used or new old yacht. Uh, got got a beautiful uh, Genoux Atalia, 32 feet. Uh, it's a, a bit of an older boat from 1984, but um, yeah, it, it's amazing to to be able to take my family out into the lake, throw an anchor, and spend a day on the water, just jumping down, eating sandwiches, and disconnecting from everything. I think it's a common theme for a lot of people where they use their hobbies and their passions to somewhat uh, disconnect and, and kind of clear their heads a little bit. That's true. Well, there's a funny name about a uh, funny story about the name of a boat I purchased. And uh, I think I told you before, uh, I purchased it from a, a nuclear engineer from Czech Republic who moved to Canada many, many years ago, who was also a vivid chess player. So he named his boat uh, Checkmate. After purchasing the boat, I've decided to keep the name because, well, the, the previous owner did a great job maintaining the boat, uh, enhancing the boat, and it's a cool name. So I decided to keep to keep the name of the boat. <laughs> it's a conversation starter. Mm -hmm. In every marina, uh, every marina I go to, usually people ask, "Oh, wow, what's a funny name?" What does it mean? And uh, it's a great conversation start. So that being said, have you been playing chess recently? I haven't. The last time I played chess was many, many decades ago. It's not even years. Uh, it's something that needs to change, I think. I, I think so. Um, I like watching a lot of chess videos, even though I'm not very good. I do enjoy uh, watching grandmasters play and their strategies. So it's always fun. We should figure out if we can play sometime. Maybe on the next podcast. Maybe. Maybe we could live broadcast it or something and see, see if we get any audience. Um, well, here's an idea. Why don't we make a podcast while you interview the guest? You continue to play. You play chess while interviewing the guest. That's not a that's not a bad idea. We'd have to do that over video and and figure out how to broadcast the game in a way where everyone can see it. But you know what? It's not a bad idea. It's um it's similar to the TV show where this guy who interviews his guests, but while they interview, they also have hot chicken wings. <laughs> uh, that's kind of an activity that they do on the side while having the interview. So it could it could be something similar, uh, probably less entertaining than the chicken wings one, but it would still be fun. Well, John, thank you uh, for your time today. It was great catching up after a long time, and hopefully we'll get to catch up in person soon. I hope so. 
I hope so. Stay safe, Nabil. You too, John. Take care. Bye-bye. This has been an Agent of Influence podcast with Nabil Hanan. Portions of this interview can be found in print on the NetSpy Executive blog. And please subscribe for future episodes of Agent of Influence at www.netspy.com slash agentofinfluence.